four Sundays ago, I took some time to talk about the coronavirus, and I'd like to take another opportunity to talk about that again today, at least for a few minutes, given where developments stand at this point in our nation. As things stand now, there have been over 7,000 people in our country who have died as a result of uh, infection from the coronavirus. Uh, but our president announced on Tuesday that we can expect anywhere from 100,000 to 240,000 people in our country to die before uh, this is over. Beyond the death toll, uh, the impact of this novel coronavirus pandemic is, is unbelievably sprawling in its reach. Many of us are confined to our homes. Over 700,000 people lost their jobs during the month of March, with even more job losses certainly to come. Those of us who are working are uh, often working from home. Schools have closed, leaving children across our country at home with their parents. And while these developments in some ways have served to make us more connected to one another in our immediate families, it has left us more disconnected from one another in ways that I don't think any of us could have imagined just a couple months ago. Four Sundays ago, just four Sundays ago, I said to you that there were only a handful of cases of COVID-19 in Riverside County. Today, there are over 500 cases, and I am no expert on such things, but the model that is presented on the Riverside University Health System page projects that by May the 12th, that number could be in the tens of thousands here in Riverside County. As of now, uh, there is no one that we know in the Cornerstone family who has tested positive for this virus, even though a growing number of us in the Cornerstone family know of people who have become infected. But all of us have been impacted. Uh, there are people in our church family who have not been able to grieve the loss of their loved ones in funerals that they had planned. There are families in our church who are not able to visit with elderly loved ones, uh, visiting them in their old age and sickness. Uh, my wife and I were supposed to be in Indiana this past week to be with Donna's mom, whose health is failing uh, yet we had to cancel our flights, partly because the long-term care facility that Donna's mom is in right now is not allowing visitors at this time. And there are others in our church family who are experiencing similar kinds of heartbreaking limitations. There are medical professionals around the world who are risking their lives and serving on the front lines of this crisis, and we should be praying for them there are medical professionals here in our church who have uh, been doing so and have been taking unprecedented steps to decontaminate when they come home to their families. And we should pray for medical professionals everywhere around the world, including in our own church, who are putting their own lives at risk in order to provide care for those who need it. We as a church have not been able to gather together on a Sunday morning for four Sundays now. And I am very thankful for the technology that allows us to connect in the way that we are connecting this morning. But it is not the same uh, for me to stare at a camera instead of at your faces. And I know that it's not the same for you either we are suffering right now and not being able to meet together in the flesh. At the center of our faith is a God who took on flesh and dwelt among us, and his name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. So in its very essence, Christianity is an incarnational religion and we have not been able to incarnate the love of Christ in community with one another like we were able to as recently as a month ago. In our care group last Sunday, 
There were people in our group who shared how they appreciate being able to connect to our morning service through video. Yet, uh, as soon as the service is over, they shared that they are left feeling an intense sadness and they're left alone in their house. The video concludes. We thank everyone for tuning in and then the service is over and they are left immediately alone in their home, staring at an image of clouds moving across their television screen. There are not hundreds of people to fellowship with like there is after a normal service when we are all physically together here on the Bournes campus. We're suffering in being apart from one another and our technologies are only so helpful in alleviating that suffering. I think of Second John um, in verse 12 of that short epistle where the Apostle John speaks to his readers and, and he says these words. Listen to what he says. Having many things to write to you, I do not want to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face so that your joy may be made full. The Apostle John had much that he wanted to communicate to his readers, but He did not feel that paper and ink was the best medium for him to communicate those things. He wanted to come to them and and be able to speak face to face so that their joy might be made full. And I feel exactly the same way. I'm thankful for the technology that allows us to have this service this morning, but there is a loss My joy and your joy are not made full. And we look forward to the day when our joy is made complete in each other's physical presence as we meet together here on the Bournes campus, hopefully soon. I've been thinking a lot this week about Psalm 122 in verse 1, where the psalmist says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord what gladness we will feel when we are able to speak those words to you. What gladness we will feel when we are able to be together once again. You know, before this coronavirus pandemic, there was, there was already a pandemic of loneliness plaguing our culture. And this loneliness is all the more severe now for millions of people across our nation, and especially for those that have been diagnosed with this virus and must now be left isolated and alone. I read a very sad article by a woman named Leslie Jameson this past week. Uh, She's a single mom who has the coronavirus, and she In the article she wrote, she bemoans the fact that the last time she was touched by an adult was nine days prior. She has been quarantined in her house with her two-year-old daughter trying to get well. And in her article, she writes these words. She says, being a single parent is like being a parent, except you're always alone. Being a single parent in quarantine is like being a parent, except the inside of your mind has become an insane asylum, echoing with the sound of your own voice. As I read that, I so wished that this woman had the voice of God inside her heart, speaking to her through his word, but she gives no indication of being a believer in Christ. Another woman uh, this past week that I was reading writes these words. She says, I am 28 years old and going through a divorce with my husband who has been cheating on me. And I am now alone in our house during the quarantine and have never felt so alone. Sad words. There are many people who are feeling lonely in our community and even in our church. And so I encourage you to pick up your phone and 
and call someone, send them a text, set up a Zoom meeting with them and and or FaceTime them and be the hands and the feet and the heart and the countenance of of Christ to them. All of that said, the law of love seems to dictate that we maintain our social distancing from one another, at least for now, out of concern for each other, especially for the most vulnerable uh, amongst us. Uh, And we are faced with many reminders that we simply cannot be too careful about this at this point. In early March, I was reading this past week, uh, 60 members of a church choir up in Washington showed up for a choir rehearsal When they arrived for this rehearsal, a greeter uh, offered each person hand sanitizer at the door. Everyone tried to be careful and to keep their distance from one another with no handshakes or hugs. But three weeks later, 45 of those 60 choir members were diagnosed with COVID-19 or showing symptoms of that and two of them were dead. That's very sobering. Three weeks ago, our president had a aspirational goal of seeing churches across our country filled on Easter Sunday. And that goal resonated with me for sure. Yet last Sunday, uh, the presidential administration decided to extend the social distancing guidelines through the end of April at which point they will reevaluate and determine the course from there. In President Trump's press briefing on Monday of this past week, he and his team were very sober while informing us that we are in for a very painful couple weeks ahead. And so here we are, given the federal guidelines that have been provided to us, uh, the elders of Cornerstone have decided to cancel all Sunday services indefinitely, including all weekly enrichment ministries. This includes our Good Friday service that would have taken place uh, this coming Friday, and it includes our Easter service this coming Sunday as well. We will continue connecting uh, in the way that we are right now uh, online on Sunday mornings, and we will encourage our care groups to continue meeting uh, through the technologies that are available to them. Uh, Others of you have been connecting in a variety of ways for discipleship and fellowship, and we're so encouraged by how many of you have gone about doing this so faithfully. We encourage you to keep connecting with each other and looking after one another through any responsible means that are available to you. Speaking of you, I must say that the elders have been blown away by your giving to the church during the month of March. Your generosity in giving to the Lord's work here at Cornerstone has been overwhelming and has left us with tears in our eyes Your general fund giving for the month of March was 14% above budget for the month. Your giving to the Agape Fund averages about $5,000 a month, yet in the month of March, you gave $19,600 to the Agape Fund. We praise God for his faithfulness. We praise him for you and for your faithfulness in giving to the Lord's work over the course of this past month. In the next month or so, uh, we know that many in our church are going to be financially impacted by this growing crisis. Uh, We've already been blessed to get financial help to some in our church who have needed it, and we stand ready to do more as needs arise If you have a financial need or if you know of someone in our church who does have a need, please contact your care group leader about that so that they can reach out to the Agape team and that need can be processed and people can receive the help that they need during this time. As I explained to all of you in my email that came out this weekend. Uh, Today is a day in which we normally would have celebrated the Lord's table in our morning service. 
Yet the elders have decided not to celebrate communion on Sunday mornings. Uh, we've decided that it's best to wait until we are together again before we celebrate the Lord's table in a Sunday morning service. I can't see you and we can't see each other partake of the elements were we to try to do that this morning. So it's best that we wait until we are together again on the Lord's day. That said, uh, we do encourage care groups to continue celebrating communion together. Uh, when care group members meet together on Zoom, for example, the experience is definitely more organic than what we're experiencing right now. While members of a care group meeting via Zoom are not together physically, they can see each other and interact with each other in two-way communication in real time, and they're definitely together spiritually. And the elders believe that a care group meeting together through a technology such as Zoom represents a meeting together or a coming together uh, that is such that it would meet the standard of an appropriate setting for the celebration of communion. So we encourage our care groups to continue celebrating communion together as they gather. With all of that said, uh, what message do I bring to you on this most unusual Palm Sunday? That is a question that I have been wrestling with for days now. Maybe Palm Sunday snuck up on you like it has snuck up on me because we've been so caught up in everything that's going on and caught up in the urgencies of the moment. But let's not forget that it was on this Sunday of the year, 2,000 years ago, when Jesus entered Jerusalem riding on a colt and a crowd of people uh, laid palm branches on the ground and celebrated his arrival into Jerusalem. Uh, a large crowd of people assembled around Jesus on this occasion, and none of them were wearing masks or worried about contracting a virus. We're not able today to be in a mass gathering but what I want to do with the time that we have is to vicariously enjoy the experience of this mass gathering around Jesus that happened on this Sunday of the year 2,000 years ago. And I want us to observe the behavior of this crowd of people. And in the process, I want us to learn six ways that we should respond to Christ on this most unique Palm Sunday that we find ourselves in today. Our text is going to be from Mark chapter 11, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. But as we work through uh, the story this morning, we're going to be allowing the other gospel writers to insert additional details into this story as it unfolds for us as we look at the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. And if you want to give a title to the message, it is Responding to Christ on this Palm Sunday. Responding to Christ on this Palm Sunday. And we're going to observe six ways that we should respond to Christ on this most unique Palm Sunday. We've been receiving a lot of guidance in recent days about how we should respond to the coronavirus. But the more important issue for all of us is how will we respond to Christ? To reject Jesus and disregard him is 100% fatal. To receive him is 100% life-giving for time and all of eternity. So this is a subject that you and I should care very much about and the first way that we're going to see in our passage this morning that we should respond to Christ on this Palm Sunday is, number one, we should let him have what is rightfully his. We should let him have what is rightfully his. During a trial such as we find ourselves in right now, it's good for us to think about what belongs to Jesus and then to open our hands and surrender to Jesus 
all that rightfully belongs to him. And we actually see this attitude on display in our passage today. Three years of Jesus' public ministry are now drawing to a close. And for many days now, Jesus has been traveling from Galilee down toward Jerusalem, fully knowing that he would be crucified and die during this very week. And look at the narrative as it begins in Mark chapter 11 in verse 1. Jesus, or the text, says to us, As they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he, Jesus, sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. Jesus is telling the disciples to say two things about the cult. Number one, the Lord has need of it. And number two, the Lord will return it immediately when he is done with it. I find it noteworthy that Jesus does not tell these two disciples to find the owners of the cult and then to ask the owners for permission to use the cult. Why is that? Why does he not ask for permission? Because Jesus is king and a king doesn't have to ask for permission from people in his kingdom to use what already belongs to him because everything already belongs to him anyway. So Jesus just says, when you find the cult, untie it, If anyone asks what you are doing, you just tell them the Lord has need of it. It's that simple. This is the way a king talks and gives directions. But notice the kind of king that Jesus is. He promises to return the cult. Apparently, Jesus is not just a king who takes and who uses, but he is a good king who gives back what he takes and uses. And Jesus wants the owner of the cult to know that when he is done with the cult, he will see to it that it is returned to the owner. In fact, the promise is even greater than that. The owner of this cult will not only receive this cult back from Jesus, but he will receive back a distinguished cult, a cult that now bears the distinction of having carried Jesus on its back during his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. I imagine that the owner of this cult will spend the rest of his life telling people about the honor that was his to provide the cult that Jesus used for his triumphal entry, bringing this owner of the cult a deeper joy in his animal than he would have ever had if he had never allowed Jesus to take the cult in the first place. This is the way it is with anything and everything that we ever give to Jesus and surrender to him. You will, for example, truly enjoy your children most after you have surrendered them to Jesus. You will enjoy your money the most after you have given all of your money to Jesus and surrendered it to him. You will truly enjoy your life the most after you have surrendered your life to Jesus because Jesus always gives back more than he takes, always. Observe what happens next, starting in verse four. The text tells us, beginning in verse four, and they, the two disciples, went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of the bystanders were saying to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they, speaking of the bystanders, gave them permission. Now Mark in his gospel only tells us that these people were bystanders, but if you read Luke chapter 19 and verse 33, uh, you would learn that these bystanders are actually the owners of the cult. 
who give permission to these two disciples to take the cult to Jesus to use. Now, I think there's every indication that when the uh, owners of the cult heard the two disciples say that the Lord has need of it, that they absolutely knew who the Lord was that was being referred to. Keep in mind that Jesus' presence in Bethany right now has already created a sensation that extends two miles away into the city of Jerusalem. If you read John's gospel, you'll learn that people are already streaming out from Jerusalem, heading out to Bethany in order to see Jesus. Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead several weeks prior to this moment, and Lazarus lived in Bethany. So everyone in this area knows who Jesus is, and they know that he has lordship over death. So if these two disciples say to anyone in Bethany, the Lord has need of it, you can bet that whoever they are talking to knows exactly who that Lord is that they are talking about, and they happily would surrender their cult to Jesus to use. So observe what happens next. These two disciples have acquired the cult, and in Mark chapter 11, verse 7, the text says, And they brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he, Jesus, sat on it. Now, why is Jesus so insistent on riding on a colt on this occasion? Well, this brings us to the second way that we should respond to Jesus on this Palm Sunday. Number two, we should receive him as the king that we most need. We should receive him as the king that we most need. In Matthew's account of this story, in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 4, Matthew says, This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, and now he quotes from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Based on this prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, we can see that in coming into Jerusalem, riding on a colt, Jesus is intending to say two things to anyone observing him. First of all, he's wanting to say, I am the promised Messiah king of Old Testament prophecy promised 550 years ago by Zechariah the prophet. But Jesus is also, in coming into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, he's also saying, I am coming to you in a spirit of gentleness. I'm not coming with the intention of making war or doing military conquest. I come right now in gentleness and in peace. Now, there is a day coming in Revelation chapter 19 when the heavens will open and Jesus will descend from heaven riding on a white horse. And in that day, he will not be coming in gentleness and peace, but he will come as a warrior ready to make war. In Revelation 19, we learn that a sword will come forth out of his mouth and with that sword, he will slice the armies to pieces that are arrayed against him. And in Revelation 19, we learn that Jesus will break his enemies and rule them with a rod of iron. In that day, people will either believe in him and be saved, or they will reject him and be destroyed forever. That's then, in a future day. But on this Palm Sunday, 2,000 years ago, And on even this Palm Sunday today in the year 2020, Jesus comes in peace, inviting all to receive him for the king that he is. Observe what happens next as Jesus heads from Bethany toward Jerusalem, and then especially as he reaches the crest of the Mount of Olives and begins his descent toward the city of Jerusalem In Mark chapter 8 and verse 11, 
Mark says, and many spread their coats in the road and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. Now, how many people were involved in doing this? Well, the only word Mark uses to describe those who were doing this is the word many. But John, in his gospel, describes this as a large crowd who is taking up these leafy branches in order to receive Jesus in this way. And in verse 9, we're told these words. Look at what verse 9 says. And those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. It is clear from the language here that the crowd sees Jesus as the one who is coming in the name of the Lord. And they're, they're thinking that this is the moment when Jesus will be taking his seat on the throne of David and restore the kingdom of David to the people of Israel. In Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 19 and verse 38, Luke tells us that the people were saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Clearly, this crowd of people are extolling Jesus as the promised king of Israel. The crowds were doing all of this to such a degree that some Pharisees in the crowd began to protest and even complain to Jesus Observe what happens according to Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 19 and verse 39, the text says, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Imagine worshiping Jesus and hearing people pleading with Jesus to make you stop your worship. That's what's happening here. And observe how Jesus responds in verse 40. The text says, But Jesus answered and said, I tell you, if these people became silent, the stones will cry out. Jesus knows the sufferings. He knows the rejection that awaits him in the days to come. But in this moment, Jesus is saying, Today, in this moment, I will have my praise. And if somehow this crowd were to fall silent, the stones would cry out and sing my praises. This kind of talk from Jesus shows us that there had to have at least been some genuine worshipers in the crowd. And Jesus is pleased with their worship, even if their worship was not fully informed. What strikes me is, wonderful is that these worshipers of Jesus know so little about Jesus compared to what we know about him today. They could not have imagined that on this very week of the calendar year, Jesus is going to be crucified on a cross for their sins and then be raised from the dead the following Sunday and then ascended to the Father's right hand where he will then reign from on high. Given what we know today, we have infinitely more reason to worship Jesus enthusiastically and to receive him as the king that we most need and to look to him as our one and only savior, our one and only king, looking to him above all other earthly rulers, especially during a time such as we find ourselves in right now. It is good for us to pray for our government leaders and to submit to them and to follow their lead when they lead us rightly. But guys, there's room in the universe for only one Messiah. And his name is not Donald Trump or Dr. Fauci. His name is Jesus. And we should daily be looking to Jesus and worshiping him as our one and only king and Savior, just as the people are doing here during this occasion of the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. There's a third way that we should respond 
to Christ on this most unique Palm Sunday that we find in the text. And that is, number three, we should ask him for the salvation that we most need. We should ask him for the salvation that we most need. As the crowd is crying out to Jesus in the passage that I just read, among the things that they say to Jesus is the word Hosanna, which is a hugely significant expression that is loaded with meaning. The Hebrew word Hosea means salvation. And when you take the expression na and put that at the end of the word Hosea, what you are saying is salvation now or salvation please. The expression Hosea na is a direct quote from Psalm 118 verse 25 where the psalmist says in the New American Standard, O Lord, do save. In the Hebrew, the expression reads Jehovah Hosheana, which means Jehovah save now. That's the prayer these people are praying right now to Jesus. They're saying Hosheana in the highest, which is their way of saying that they think that even heaven is agreeing with them and calling upon Jesus to come and to save them now. Little do they realize how much heaven actually agrees with them in this amazing moment and how the Father himself is uttering this call, Hosea to his own son. In this moment, Jesus is hearing the people saying, save now. And Jesus is also hearing all of heaven saying, save now. And Jesus will respond to this cry. However, this crowd of people are a little confused about the salvation that they most need. They want Jesus to bring them salvation from the oppression of Rome. Yet Jesus is coming to save them from their sins. On this Palm Sunday of 2020, I think all of us would happily come to Jesus today and say, Hosea and say to him, save now, save us from the coronavirus, save us from the crashing economy, save me, Jesus, from unemployment, save me from bankruptcy, save my business, save me from my loneliness, save me from boredom. Some of you are used to having your children in school right now, and you may be right now praying, Lord, save me from my children. And maybe some of you children want salvation from your parents. There are many things that we might wish for salvation from. You might be wishing for salvation from your spouse or salvation from suffering or salvation from singleness or salvation from President Trump or salvation from the liberals My point is that it's easy for us to point the finger outside of ourselves and view some external thing as the problem that we need to be saved from. But what Christ wants from us more than anything is for us to realize that the number one thing that we need to be saved from is our own sin. The greatest danger facing any of us is the sin inside of us. And the only one who can save us from that danger is Jesus. A greater danger than the coronavirus is the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins. And Jesus is the only one who can deliver us from that wrath. Jesus knows as he hears the crowd crying out for him to save them now, he knows that they don't really understand what they're asking for. But Jesus is going to answer their prayer and he will proceed with giving them the salvation that they most need anyway. In a few days, Jesus is going to die for their sins. Jesus is going to be raised from the dead and then he's going to save some of these very people. 
And many of them will later testify and say, I asked Jesus to save me on Palm Sunday, and he ended up answering my prayer, but not in the way I expected. He saved me from me. He saved me from my sin. He saved me from the wrath of God and answered my prayer in ways far better than I was even thinking in the moment when I cried out to him and said, Hosea, no. So we too should be like them and cry out to Jesus and ask him for the salvation we need and the salvation he desires to give to us. But there is yet another thing that we should do, and this brings us to the fourth way that we should respond to Jesus on this most unique Palm Sunday. And that is, number four, we should hear his lament over those who reject him. We should hear his lament over those who reject him. Something fascinating happens as Jesus approaches Jerusalem that is not recorded in Mark's gospel, but we're told about it in Luke's gospel. And it actually comes as a surprise to us. Up to this point, this seems to be a happy moment for Jesus with everyone extolling him and worshiping him. But observe what Luke tells us in Luke chapter 19, verse 41 and following. The text says, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. Why was he weeping? Listen to his words. He was saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus right now is looking into the future and he's making this stunning prediction. The people of Jerusalem are going to end up rejecting Jesus in just a few days from now, and they will follow a different path than the one that Jesus would have led them on if they had received him as their king. The path that they're going to choose is going to lead them to an awful fate, and Jesus is right now weeping over the suffering that is going to befall the people of Jerusalem, as the judgment of God descends upon them. And sure enough, 40 years from this very moment, 40 years, the Jews are going to be following the zealot messiahs of their own choosing, and they're going to try to save themselves from the Romans by using their own strength and their actions are going to provoke the Roman armies to come and to set siege around the city of Jerusalem. And during the siege, the Roman army is going to cut off the food supply and the water supply from the city, eventually creating conditions of depression and starvation inside of Jerusalem that are unimaginable to us today. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian tells that tells us that during the latter stages of this siege, the people of Jerusalem became so hungry that they were gnawing on their leather sandals for nourishment. Some mothers, Josephus says, ate their infant children because of their desperate hunger. According to Josephus, there were Jews who were so hungry during the siege that they ran out of the city of Jerusalem and surrendered themselves to the Roman armies, hoping that they would get some food. And Josephus tells us that the Roman soldiers would take every one of these Jews and crucify 
them on crosses outside the walls of the city of Jerusalem. Eventually, the Roman army invaded Jerusalem and they showed no mercy. They were instructed by the Roman emperor at this time to spare the temple. But Josephus says that in the attack that happened upon the city of Jerusalem, the temple caught fire and the Roman soldiers seeing the fire went into a frenzy and destroyed the temple. And by the time everything was said and done, there was not one stone left on top of the other. And here in Luke chapter 19, on this occasion of Palm Sunday, Jesus is weeping because he knows that the city of Jerusalem is not going to recognize him as their Messiah. They will refuse to crown him king and will instead give him a crown of thorns. Instead of giving him a throne, they're going to give him a cross to hang upon. They're going to reject him as king and then turn around and follow other messiahs of their own choosing who will tell them the things that they want to hear. And they're going to pay an awful price for their rejection of Jesus. Little do they know that 40 years from this triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem, 500 Jews a day, according to Josephus, will be crucified over many weeks outside the city walls of Jerusalem. And in the end, over 1.1 million Jews will be killed in the siege and the sacking of Jerusalem that follows. Many tears will be shed in those future years, just four decades from this moment that we find ourselves in right now as Jesus comes into Jerusalem but Jewish readers of the gospel accounts would know that the weeping over the suffering of Jerusalem started here on the day of Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Jesus Christ was the first mourner who would mourn the fall of Jerusalem, a fall that will come upon the city because they did not recognize the time of their visitation when their true Messiah came to them in gentleness and mercy. And this is such a great reminder for us today. It is good for us to be concerned about the coronavirus. It's good for us to grieve the suffering and the death that many across our world have and will experience as a result of the coronavirus. But a far greater thing to fear then the coronavirus is the judgment of God that comes upon those who reject Christ. And if you're listening to this message today and you in any way feel Jesus visiting you in your heart and drawing you to himself, I plead with you to understand that this is your time of visitation when Jesus comes to you in gentleness and mercy. Respond to his call today and receive him as your king so that Jesus can save you and rejoice over you rather than weep over the judgment that will befall you for rejecting him. There's a fifth way that we should respond to Jesus on this Palm Sunday. Number five, we should let him make wreckage of our way of doing things. We should let him make wreckage of our way of doing things. Observe what happens in Mark chapter 11 and verse 11. Mark says, And Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. That kind of seems anticlimactic, doesn't it? Yet if you look closely, you notice that two things are happening. Number one, Jesus comes into the temple. And number two, Jesus spends some time looking around at everything. Nothing escapes his notice. One writer named Walter Wessel says that Jesus looked around at everything, not as a tourist, but as the sovereign Lord. 
And that's absolutely true. And we know what Jesus saw as he checked out everything that was going on. He sees money changers doing business in the court of the Gentiles. He sees animals being trafficked and sold, and he sees business being conducted. And some of those business dealings involved price gouging and thievery. Also, the temple was supposed to be a house of prayer for all of the nations, including the Gentiles. Yet instead of the court of the Gentiles being a place of worship for the Gentiles, Jesus observes that it's become a noisy center for business and for unjust gain, hindering the Gentiles from being able to worship God and pray to him. And Jesus sees all of this. He's walking around. He's taking notes. He's looking at everything that's going on and nothing escapes his notice. He's checking out what's going on in his house and he is offended by what he sees. How do we know that? Well, on the very next day, we're told in Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 45, these words, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, it is written, and my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. In Matthew chapter 21 and verse 12, we're told that Jesus also overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. In doing this, Jesus is acting as a king and he's asserting his authority over those who were in the temple in his house. And think about this. The Jewish leaders should have witnessed Jesus doing this And they should have responded to Jesus by saying, Jesus, whatever you want from us, we will give it to you. Whatever you say, make wreckage of whatever you like. You're the king. This is your house. Tell us now how you want us to redesign temple activities to your liking. But that's not how they responded. In Mark chapter 11 and verse 18, we learn that the religious leaders responded to Jesus by resolving to destroy him one way or another. Instead of letting Jesus make wreckage of their way of doing things, they chose to make wreckage of Jesus. And we all have the same choice before us today. Every sinner beholding Christ has this choice. Will they let Christ make wreckage of their life and then make their life new? Or will they reject Christ and hold on to their preferred way of doing things? Rosaria Butterfield had just such a choice presented to her in the early 90s. She was a lesbian professor at Syracuse University. She was involved in social justice causes, standing up for marginalized people, and she was feeling quite righteous about her life. Her life was as happy and as peaceful as she thought it could be. But then one day, she says, Jesus came into her life unexpectedly and uninvited, and she did not like the intrusion at all. She says in an article for Christianity Today, and I quote, she says, I fought with everything I had. I did not want this. I did not ask for this. I counted the cost and I did not like the math on the other side of the equal sign. But after a long struggle, she gave in to Jesus. Listen to what she says. Then one ordinary day, I came to Jesus open-handed and naked. Jesus triumphed, and I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything that I loved, 
but the voice of God sang a sanguine love song in the rubble of my world. I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make right my world. I drank, tentatively at first, then passionately, of the solace of the Holy Spirit. Rosaria once hated Christians, and now she is one. She is a pastor's wife who now gives her life to telling people the truth about Jesus and the power of Jesus to change a life. And she is so glad that she allowed Jesus to make wreckage of her life, her old life, and give her a new life in its place. What choice will you make in responding to Jesus? There's yet one more way that we should respond to Jesus on this Palm Sunday and every day of the year. Let's look at this. Number six, we should hang on his every word. We should hang on his every word. Listen to what is said in Luke chapter 19 and verse 47 and following. The text says, And Jesus was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priest and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him, and they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging on to every word he said. I love that language there. The people are in rapt attention to every single word that fell from Jesus' lips. He had their attention, and they were all ears. And may Jesus have our attention, and may we treasure and hang upon every word that falls from his lips as he speaks to us. Right now, it's easy for us to hang upon every word of news headlines that are put before us, to hang on every word that Dr. Fauci or President Trump or every word that Sean Hannity or Rachel Maddow or Anderson Cooper or Rush Limbaugh might want to say to us. We're right now hanging on a lot of people's words as we're trying to make sense of what is going on. But above all of the voices that we may listen to, may Christ Above all, be the one who has our ears. As long as we are listening to him and literally hanging upon his every word, we're going to be safe and we will have his peace in our hearts. I don't know about you, but I, I think we received some very helpful guidance from this triumphal entry of Christ and how it is recorded in the various gospel accounts for us this morning. Guidance that we should follow today and every day of our lives. We should let Christ have what is rightfully his. We should receive him as the king that we most need. We should ask him for the salvation that we most need. We should hear him weep over those who reject him. We should allow him to make wreckage of our normal way of doing things so that he can then, out of that wreckage, make us new. And we absolutely should hang on his every word. Will you do those things today? I read this week about a 92-year-old woman living in Belgium who followed all of the rules and stayed in her home, sheltered away from anyone else in order to keep herself safe from the coronavirus, yet she somehow contracted the virus and died this past week. I can assure you this morning on the authority of Scripture that if you respond to Christ in the ways that we are talking about this morning, if you receive him as your king receiving his word and hanging upon every word and asking him for the salvation that he desires to give to you, I can promise you that you will live forever with him in glory. If you don't respond to him 
according to these guidelines, you will perish in your sins. Actually, the religious leaders of Jerusalem, they responded to Jesus as he came to Jerusalem and treated him as a virus coming into their city. They wanted to get rid of him, and they thought they got rid of him when they crucified him later during this very week. Yet God raised him from the dead, and Jesus was alive again and causing trouble for these very same religious leaders, all the while giving salvation to those who were willing to receive salvation through him. And one day at the judgment, these religious leaders are going to run right smack dab into Jesus once again. And Jesus, as their judge, will declare their eternal fate. No one can avoid Jesus. No one. Normally, I would end a message by appealing to you to come to Jesus. This morning, I end this message by appealing to you to allow Jesus to come to you as your king and to allow him to save you from your sin. Will you let Jesus do that today? He's gentle. He's gentle in all the ways that he needs to be gentle, but he's also totally willing to overturn the tables of your life and assert his royal authority over your life in all the ways that he needs to for your eternal good and for his great glory? Are you willing to submit your life to Jesus' love and to believe in him, to be bathed in the blood of Christ that was shed at the cross for you, to give you forgiveness for your sins? Are you willing to surrender to him and allow him to be the king that rules over you and saves you from your sins? Or will you reject him today? If you've never invited King Jesus into your life to save you from your sins, I urge you to do that today. Call out to him as your saving Lord today and say to him, Hosea na, Hosea na, save now, save please, Lord Jesus, save me from my sins. And I know that if you do pray that prayer to him He not only will save you, but he will be pleasured to do so. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for how you come to us on this day in our lives, this Palm Sunday of 2020. We are so caught up in other stories of what's going on and the urgency of the moment that is upon us in our society today. So much so, Lord, that we can forget about the big story. The big story of you invading our world and coming in human flesh, and living the perfect life that we all have failed to live, and then dying the death that we deserve to die, and then being raised from the dead, ascended to the right hand of God, so that you can thereby, from that position at the right hand of God, provide forgiveness of sins, atonement, and salvation to all of those who see their bankruptcy and their desperate need and look to you and say, you, Lord Jesus, are the one and only Savior, the one and only King for me. May that be the story that grips our hearts that makes all other stories not only small by comparison, but it puts all other stories in perspective. 
I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come to us today and in the days of this week in very special ways, that you would be truly Emmanuel to us, God with us in the moment we find ourselves right now. Give comfort to those who need comfort. Bring conviction where conviction is needed. And bring salvation to every heart where salvation is needed. And I, Lord, want to be the first to confess that I need more of your saving work in my heart. Teach me and teach all of us, Lord, of the salvation we need and give us hearts that are wide open to the salvation that you yourself and only you can provide. And then help us to carry this message to others who are fearful and lonely and who are asking very serious questions right now. And use us, Lord, to be a light, to be carriers of the good news of salvation through Christ and through him alone. I ask your blessing upon all of us as we seek to do these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.